Hello everyone, my name is Mitchell Rice. I'm a volunteer here at the chapel and I attend the Sandusky campus. Today, we will be reading from Ruth chapter three, the entire chapter. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice when he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her, and she added, he gave these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Yeah, it's such a weird story, right? We're in the book of, of Ruth, chapter 3. It's so cool to see you reading your Bibles. And, and uh, yeah, we want to continue to have you to do that, um, to make that a practical thing in your life. Last night, my wife was telling me about how like her and I are like Ruth and Boaz because I'm older than her. And I was like, yeah, but you didn't like propose to me by like laying at my feet on a barn floor. So, and which is kind of weird, you know, like... I'm so glad proposals, marriage proposals have evolved since then. Guys, if a girl proposes to you by like laying on the floor at the feet of your bed or whatever, first of all, you need to lock your doors, okay? That's a huge red flag right there. So, and <clears throat> as we talk about this really weird chapter, one of the things that's gonna stick out <clears throat> is how Ruth chapter three is a lot, is about risk and obedience. 
all right, and, and obedience and, and how that, that has risk and what it meant for Ruth and Boaz and then what it means for us as Christ followers. And I wanted to share a personal spirit, story, experience about when this happened in my life. And a lot of you know my story, some of you don't, but I was a bartender for eight years, all right? I went from bartending for eight years and then into children's ministry, as you do, uh, makes sense. <laughs> and so I was a bartender, and, and even for a year and a half after I became a follower of Jesus, I, I worked in that in that career, and I felt like God was calling me to get out of that because I wasn't honoring him. Now, I'm not saying if you work, if, you, if that's your profession, I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just saying that's what God called me to do. And I wouldn't listen um, because, one, like, I was making really good money, and if you're a bartender, you get cash like every day, which is great. And so I was making good money, and so I was afraid to do this. I was afraid that I was going to take a huge pay cut if I stopped that. So um, sometimes when you don't listen to God, he allows some things that happen to kind of get the message across. So I got arrested again uh, for serving a minor, all right, and this was a bad deal, and I was going to get some big trouble for this, and so I was like, okay, I get it, I'm out, all right, so... I quit that role and I started doing some restaurant management and I seriously took like a 40% pay cut. And here's why that bothered me because I had moved to Norwalk to be closer to my older two kids. I, I came from Fremont, that's where I grew up. And I knew that if I couldn't afford my apartment, I was gonna have to move back in with my family in Fremont and I'll be 45, 50 minutes away from my kids. So, um, you know, this obviously upset me. And I remember one day, like I was, I was like cleaning my apartment and I'm, and I'm crying and I don't even like cry a lot, but I'm crying and my daughter um, was like, hey, what's wrong? And I was like, you know, we're not going to be able to afford to live here anymore. We're going to have to move. And she's so sweet. She went and got her piggy bank and came and gave it to me. And she's like, here, Dad, you can have my money. And I was like, you just don't understand finances, do you? <laughs> no, she was so sweet. She wanted to help out. So I called my landlord, and he's such a great guy. Him and his family, they all attend the chapel. You know him. Um, I said who it was. I called him and I told him, I was like, hey, I'm not going to be able to afford the apartment anymore. I'm going to have to move back to Fremont with my family because I'm not making enough money. And he's like, okay, I understand. And he calls me back 10 minutes later. And he's like, hey, I've got an idea to help you out. And I was like, oh, sweet. He's going to like cut rent in half. And he, he was like, you know, my, my kids are all grown. They moved out. We've got this huge house. And we've got a completely finished basement. How about you would come live with us until, you know, you and Marlena get married? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, just come live with us. And I was like, okay, so I did. And I went and lived with this family, this Christian family um, who was a part of the chapel for like eight months before my wife and I got married. And it was one of the best times of my life. It was so cool to be able to share life with them and to grow under their wisdom and their mentorship. And they, they helped Marlene and I as we prepared to get married. It was a really cool experience. And I say all of that because there was a risk to obeying Jesus and I was afraid of that risk. Um, but when I finally obeyed him, it turned out to be something incredible. So in the same way, Ruth chapter 3 is about risk and obedience. The two often go hand in hand. Now, if you haven't been here in a while and you missed the sort of the messages leading up to, the, to the, today, all of those are available online or through the app, so please go back and catch up with those too. But let's see what happens next in the story. So uh, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, this is Naomi's plan. It says this, One day Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. So Naomi, who through the story has really been bitter and focused on herself through the whole thing, kind of takes the focus off herself and puts the focus on Ruth, seeking the good of another person, caring for Ruth. And she's probably thinking, all right, when I'm gone, who's going to take care of Ruth? Who, you know, and I can't take care of her, then who will? 
And when Naomi says to Ruth, it's time I found a permanent home for you, it literally means to find rest, to be settled and secure in a home with a husband. In that time, in, the, in that culture, parents were responsible for finding a spouse for their child. And some of you are like, we need to bring that back, all right, because I need to get my son out of my basement, okay? You'll laugh at that later. That was funny. All right, so what's her plan? So Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So first thing, Boaz is what's known as a kinsman redeemer. It's a male relative who had the responsibility to help another relative if they were in need or in danger. So she tells Ruth, take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Pretty solid advice right there. Next thing, then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. All right? And then be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. This is where it's getting weird. He will tell you what to do. So Naomi tells, Bo, tells Ruth to go find Boaz on the threshing floor, which the threshing floor would have been a flat area, probably on top of a hill. And in the evening, when the sun, had, when it was cooler and there was a bit of a breeze or some wind, they would go out there and they would thresh their grain. So what that meant was they would take the grain and they would throw it in the air. And the wind would blow the outer shell, the husk, or what they called the chaff, away. And that would be gathered to be used for animal feed. And then the grain would fall down to the floor because it was heavier. So at the end of this, you would have a pile of grain. And so then they would, sometimes they would sleep with that pile of grain, okay, to protect it. And then the next day, take it to their home or to the market uh, to sell. So Naomi told Ruth to go there and take special notice of where Boaz laid down by his pile of grain and then go uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. And so essentially, this was a way to propose. And like I said, I am so glad that marriage proposals had, have evolved since then, right? But there is definitely some risk involved. I mean, what's Boaz going to think about this? How would he respond? Would he look at Ruth as being like too forward or too promiscuous? Um, so there was certainly some risk involved, but Ruth was willing to do it, to do this beside, despite the risk. So look at how she responds to Naomi. She says, I will do everything you say. She doesn't say, hey, I will do some of what you say. She says, no, I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night, and she followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Why was Ruth so willing? Why was she so obedient? Well, some of it had to do with who Naomi was. Naomi had shown her heart. She had cared for Ruth and was there for Ruth when her own husband had died. And so both of them were widows, and and Ruth knew that Naomi understood what it was like to lose a spouse. And Ruth knew that Naomi wanted what was best for her. So I think the reason that she could say to Naomi, hey, I will do everything you say, was because she knew Naomi's heart for her. And I wonder sometimes if that's why it's, it's so difficult for us to obey God, to trust God, to say, I will do everything you say. Maybe it's because we haven't really taken the time to know God's heart for us. Maybe you're a new Christian, you just haven't, haven't walked with him long enough to know that. And I think sometimes we think God is trying to take away from us, right? That God wants to steal our happiness or our joy or to take our gifts, but that's not true because Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said, but I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. 
So we think that Jesus is trying to take away from us, but instead he's trying to give to us. Or maybe we think it's because we know better, right? We think, that, we think that we can stand before the creator God in all of his holiness and say, hey, God, I know you created everything. I know you're literally keeping me alive right now, but I know, I, I know what, I've got a better plan on what to do in this part of my life. Or maybe, maybe we think we can just get away with partial obedience. You know, it's like we'll, give, we'll go 99% of the way with God, but there's always that 1% in our lives that we like to keep hold of, that we like to keep control of. And I'm not condemning you. I do this as well. You know, so we say, I'll do, I'll, I'll do some of what you say. So, but Ruth doesn't do this. She trusts Naomi. And so look at what she says. Or this is what she says. It says, after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and, li- and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over for me, for, my, for you are my family redeemer. All right, so this is super weird and confusing. Let me, let me give it a little bit of a context. Now, um, first of all, Naomi's plan for Ruth seemed pretty risky, pretty forward, even like a little sneaky or seducing. But Ruth's character and Boaz's character are revealed in what happens here. When Ruth asks Boaz to spread the corner of his covering over her, it's the same Hebrew word, that Boaz used when he said this, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. In essence, he was saying that you will be the one, or I'm sorry, in essence, she was saying that you will be the one that God uses to protect me and comfort me and provide me by bringing you under your wing. So she was saying, hey, put your, the corner of your covering over me as a way of a sign saying, you, I want you to be the one to protect me, to provide for me. She's making her intentions very clear. There's a commentary, and it says this. Instead of leaving the situation dangerously ambiguous, as a woman of character, Ruth wanted to make her intentions clear right from the start. Her goal was commitment to marriage, not a single night of passion. In the ancient world, such commitment was symbolized by the gesture of covering someone with the corner of one's robe, which is roughly the equivalent to giving an engagement ring in our culture. So... Ruth was looking for a covenant relationship, not a fling. Ruth took a risk, and she followed Naomi's plan. She obeyed and did everything that Naomi told her and more. And now the question is, what's going to happen? How is Boaz going to respond? Well, there's a problem here because Ruth is a Moabite woman, and Moabite women didn't have the best reputation. In Numbers 25, in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, Moabite women led the Israelite men into sexual immorality and and idolatry. So there is a stigma that comes along with Ruth. The commentary says this, taking on a Moabite wife would have probably been at least socially awkward, if not worse. A man might end up as a social outcast spurned by decent society. So this was going to be a risk for Boaz as well to take her as his wife. So he says this, the Lord bless you, my daughter. That's what Boaz exclaims. Boaz's response is one of familial endearment. He doesn't say, what's up, girl? How you doing, shawty? No, he doesn't say any of that. He, he says, my daughter, right? A woman showing up at your bedside in the middle of the night usually only means one thing. But he responds to her with such care, referencing her as his daughter. He says, you are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. 
For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter, for it is for I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. So Ruth is hardworking, she's caring, she's committed to caring for Naomi and placing others' needs before her own. She didn't try to look out for herself, chasing younger men instead, or somebody with money. Instead, she, she came seeking the shelter, care, and commitment of Boaz, who is her family redeemer. And Boaz is a man of character as well, because he says this, while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. So here's the situation. Ruth wants Boaz to be her family redeemer, but Boaz, no, he doesn't, he doesn't actually have the right to marry her. There is another relative in line before her, and I know this seems totally weird, but there was somebody else who had the right to marry, to marry Ruth if he wanted to. So now Boaz, because of his character, because of his moral character, he says, look, we're going to do this right. We're going to play that. We're going to do this by the book. So he hits the pause button and he contacts the man who has the right to marry Ruth first. This is what he says to Ruth. Stay here tonight and in the morning I will talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until the morning. So Boaz is taking a couple risks as well because he's saying, look, hey, we're going to do what's right here. We're, you know, and he may have wanted to marry Ruth at this time, but he says, you know what? This guy has the right to marry you, so we're going we're to ask him first. We're not going to try to manipulate this situation. Boaz was a man of character. He had already shown this by willing to make some costly provisions for the poor and the needy. He says he has, that we have to do things the right way. But if the family member is not willing to marry you, then you can count on me. I am in. Boaz was making himself available for God's will to be done in his life. Which then asks the question, or leads to the question, are we willing to do what we need to make ourselves available for God to do his will in our lives? And you might say, well, what if God asked me to do something that I don't think I'm capable of? Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, going from being a bartender for eight years to doing children's ministry is not a natural progression, right? I felt that I certainly did not have the skills or the background or, or whatever it takes to do that, but God had called me to do something and he equipped me to do it as I followed the calling. J.D. Greer, he's a pastor and author, he says this, God works through availability, not ability. He calls only for your complete and total obedience. He's looking for a willingness to take risk and to trust God for the outcome. Boaz was opening himself up to risk, and it was going to cost him something. Because we're going to see in the next chapter that Boaz would have to purchase some land from from Naomi that was owned by, by her um, belated husband. And then he's going to be taking on the ongoing responsibility of really caring for Ruth and Naomi as well. Because sometimes, I'd say oftentimes, there's a cost to obedience. But if God is calling you to obey him in something we can trust, something that we can trust is that the cost will absolutely be worth it. I mean, think about it. Anything in life that is really worth anything is going to cost you. We're willing to give up so much for a job, for school, for a sport, for a career, for a relationship, for a hobby. But what are we willing to give up to God to obey him? You know, this chapter of Ruth 3 is really all about obedience and the risk that comes with that. 
You know, would, would Ruth take a risk by obeying her plan with Naomi? I'm sorry, would Naomi take a risk by sharing her plan with Ruth? And would Ruth take a risk by obeying that plan? And then would Boaz take a risk on a Moabite woman? And would he obedient to what he sensed God doing in him to provide the care, safety, and, and rest for both Ruth and Naomi? It's an incredible story. But you, and, and I hate to do this, but you're going to have to wait till next week to see what happens next. But it leads me to, to some next step questions that I want you to think about, Okay. The first one is, what risk is God asking me to take? What risk? And, you know, it may be one of those things that God has been challenging you with for years, or maybe it's just popped up, and maybe it scares the crap out of you. And I want to tell you this. Sometimes the thing that scares you the most is the very thing that God is calling you to do. The next one is, what does complete obedience to God mean for me right now? now. Not next year, not next month, not next week, but today. What does that look like? And three, what reward might Jesus have waiting on the other side of my obedience? For me, obeying Jesus allowed me to spend some really incredible time with a family in their home, and that was such a rewarding thing. I wouldn't be the person I am today without that. And so this story about Ruth is connected to Jesus because from this relationship between Boaz and Ruth, Jesus was descended. And there is, obedience, there is risk and there is obedience when it comes to following Jesus. Let me, let me play this out a little bit. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories in the Scripture about risk and obedience is, is in John 2. And it talk, it's where Jesus goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. So here's the story. Jesus goes to this wedding in Cana, and the wedding would have been five to seven days. It was a huge deal, right? And they would have had wine that needed to last the entirety of that time. And this was a shame and honor culture. So if you were to make a really big cultural mistake, like running out of wine, guarantee you that would have been, a, that stigma would have been attached to your marriage for the, for the remainder of it. You, no matter how awesome the music was, no matter how good the DJ was, you know, whatever it is, no matter how good the food was, you would have been known as that couple that didn't have enough wine, right? So, so the wine is running out. This is a cultural emergency. And Mary, Jesus' mother, who was also acquainted with probably that cultural stigma, because here, here's Mary, who was all, probably always known as the teacher, or I'm sorry, the teacher, the teenager who got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, all right? And she, was, she had that shame that followed her all of her life, because nobody, not many people really believed her. So, so she realizes it's going to happen. She goes to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, you got to do something here. And then Mary turns to the servants of the wedding, and she says one of the most important things in all of Scripture. It's a little tiny, it's a little tiny phrase, and you'll overlook it every time. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, which is what it means to follow Jesus for us today, to do whatever he tells you. And here's why. Because what Jesus tells the servants to do is absolutely nuts. He says, hey, go fill those ceremonial washing jars with water. And they're probably thinking like, hey, buddy, we're not out of water. We're out of wine, right? And they're thinking like, this is, a, this is already a bad situation. You're about to make it worse. But they did whatever he told them to do. They filled the jars with water. Jesus turns it into wine. And not just any wine, but the, but the best wine they had ever had and saved this, this couple from being shamed for the rest of their life. But there was a risk. 
because the servants could have been really embarrassed if this didn't turn out. And so that's what following Jesus is, doing whatever he tells us, even if there's a cost, even if it's risky, even if, there's a, even if there's a potential for embarrassment or any of those things. Because we cannot say we love Jesus and then not do what he says. And here's why. Jesus said this, John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. And obey is a sticky word that can carry some negative connotations with it. You know, it can conjure up thoughts of an oppressive authorities calling for blind obedience and then the threat of punishment for those that don't comply with it. And maybe this past year with some of the things, you're, you know, our government, our employers, this church, schools, businesses have asked us to do, you struggle with that. You're like, I'm tired of obeying. I just want my freedom back, right? But obedience isn't a bad thing. It's a neutral thing that's contingent on who or what we're obeying. I mean, parents, you want your children to obey, right? Hopefully because you love them and you want what's best for them. And and Jesus calls us to obey him. We struggle at times because we think he's trying to take something away from us. I mean, parents, have you ever had your kids think that? Like, you ask them, like, they're they're just like, you're just trying to ruin my life. And you're like, no, I'm just trying to keep you alive, right? I'm sorry that you want to do that. I'm not okay with it. You think I'm trying to take from you, but I'm doing this because I love you. And so if Jesus loves us, which he does and has proven through his death on the cross for us, and if Jesus is in control, and if he created you, and not only created you, but created everything that we know, and if he's good and he knows what's best for you, then it follows logically that we should always obey him. Who are we to stand before God and tell him that we know what's better for us than he does? So what are the what are Jesus' commands that we're to obey? Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commands, love God, love others. You know, I think that we, we can often think that if God called us to do something big, we'd do it. Jesus you want me to go, you want me to quit my job and go to, go to seminary and go into vocational ministry? I'll do it. You know, Jesus, you want me to sell everything and move our family to Africa and go into missions? I will do it. And Jesus is like, how about you just drive the speed limit? I mean, how about you just obey the authorities that God has placed in authority and who deem that this is the safe speed limit to to drive instead of thinking, well, I have a better plan. I'm about to make some people mad right now by what I'm going to say, but that's okay. When you find your calling, there's a blessing in it. What about just being completely honest with your spouse? I mean, 100% about everything you look at, everything you say, everything you do. What about telling your job no so you can tell your family yes instead of obeying the fear that if you don't work overtime, you're not going to have enough, that God won't come through and provide? What about deleting that app? What about moving out of your girlfriend your boyfriend, or your fiancé's house until you're married? What about not continually improving your house so that you can use what you have to make someone else's life better? You know, do you see your resources as something that you own or as something that God has given you to use to bless others? And does, that, does your life reflect that in the way that you use your time and your money? What about not posting divisive posts about social media, whether or not they're right, 
But having a face-to-face conversation with someone you, don't, you, don't, you disagree with or even someone you don't like so that you can show them the love of Jesus. What about instead of judging people by the way they live, the way they vote, what they post or promote, that you consider that if you were in their shoes, you just may understand why they think and believe and live the way that they do. What about the way that you talk about people when they're not around? Because some of you will leave today and you'll have some things to say about what I'm saying right now. You'll have some things to say about how this person was dressed at church or, or this song that Jeremy chose or whatever. But maybe you just have those conversations with them in, in person instead of saying things when they're not around. We sang that song earlier today, Jesus, I love you, right? But this quote from Jackie Hill Perry says this, there's a huge disconnect between our worship of God and the way we speak about the people God has made. It's an inconsistent thing to sing, I love you, Lord, and to say, I hate you, neighbor. You know, students, what about you just do your own homework instead of having someone else let you copy theirs? What about putting your phone down and having an actual conversation with your parents sometime so that you can honor your father or mother? What about getting up an hour early every single day to spend time with Jesus? And I know I'm asking you crazy stuff right now, right? You're like, That's, I can't do that. I'm not going to have enough sleep. I'll tell you what. I used to think that too, but I got my screen time report from my phone this morning. It's five hours, 14 minutes a day on average. Okay, how dare I look at my phone for five hours and then not tell Jesus, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have an hour for you. I know you created everything. I know you're keeping me alive, and I know you love me more than I could possibly ever imagine, but I just don't have an hour. What about getting out of your comfort zone and being a part of a small group that encourage you and challenge you in your faith because following Jesus was never meant to be a solo journey? You might say, I don't know, I don't have the time. It's a Wednesday night, I got this going on. I just like to relax after work. What if it's weird, what if it's uncomfortable? It's like, who cares? Just obey everything that Jesus tells you to do. You know, what if you take, take one day a week? What if Sunday is truly a Sabbath day, a day that you give to the Lord and you say, you know what, son, I am so sorry you're not going to be able to do this sport or this tournament or this or whatever it is. Um, you're not going to be able to do this academic because they practice on Sundays, and that day is for God. And I know that's crazy to think that because, because at the end of your life, you're going to stand before God, and he's, you're going to have to give account to his, his commandments. And one of those commandments is to, is to love God with everything. And, and one of Jesus and one of the commandments is also to take a day and devote that to the Lord. And you're going to say, I'm sorry, God, we couldn't because we were too busy. And I'm not saying... Every Sunday, but I can't tell you, church, how many times I've had a parent come to me and their, their student is a senior in high school and their life is a mess and they don't understand why. And I say, well, I know that you made sure to have him in church every Sunday that you weren't traveling for baseball or weren't in an AAU tournament or weren't doing this thing or that thing or other. So they were there about four times a year and now you're reaping what you've sown. I say these things as a flawed flawed man telling you that I struggle with these things. I am not perfect. I am not condemning you. I am not judging you. But I say them, church, because I love you. And I want you to go deep with Jesus. And so if there's a tension in your heart, if you are angry at any of the things that I said, if they upset you or they cause anxiety, I want you to pay attention to that because that could very well be the Holy Spirit convicting you. Obedience to Jesus does not earn you his love. It's a sign of your love. I want to end with this quote. Your obedience doesn't purchase God's love for you. Christ's blood is the only purchase that could do that. Rather, your obedience is a thankful expression that you understand the significance of God's love being placed on you. Let me pray. Father, I pray for myself that you would help me to obey you fully. 
Not 90%, not 99%, but 100%. God, work in my heart. And I pray for those here this morning, God, if they felt a tension or, or an anger or whatever it is, God, in their heart, that they would understand that that could very well be you, Holy Spirit, calling them to obey you in that area of their life. So we thank you, Jesus. Please help us to be obedient. And in that, see the rewards that you have for us on the other side of that obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.